Hey there, it's Jake. Before we jump in, I wanted to let you know that this episode of The Online Hustle is a bit of a time capsule. It's from a podcast I used to run between 2012 and 2016. You're going to hear some references to that show, uh, to businesses and content that may have changed or may not even exist anymore. Welcome to episode number three. Thank you for tuning in again if you've, you've heard the first two episodes. If you're new to the show, welcome. I'd uh, encourage you to listen to this episode and then go back to the previous two where we interviewed Ryan Spanger about web video and Jules Watkins about using just your iPhone to shoot high quality video. Right, in this episode, we're speaking with Dave Dugdale from learningdslrvideo.com. Dave is an amazing guy. He's built a, an incredibly large audience online as an amateur DSLR user. Essentially, what he's done is he's, I guess, recorded his experience with, with learning how to use the DSLR camera and published it online for everybody to follow along with him. We discuss a whole heap of amazing topics. It's an incredible episode. Probably my favorite to date. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Certainly stick around till the end of the show where I'll reveal uh, a next couple of guests. So we've got some very exciting people coming up in the next few episodes. So stick around to the end where I'll reveal them. And again, thank you to everybody who's provided feedback for the previous two shows. It's been really incredible. If, if you like this episode or the previous episodes, please head across to iTunes and leave a review. I'll be uh, publishing uh, some of the, the comments that that we get in iTunes in future episodes. That's it. Let's get stuck into the interview. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, today I've got Dave Dugdale from learningdslrvideo.com on the line with me. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me on. I know these podcasts, I've done quite a few of them myself, maybe 20 or so years back, and I know they take a lot of work, so thanks for doing this. Uh, no problems at all. It's, certainly, this is we're now into our th the third episode that I'm recording, and it was a no-brainer to get you on. I shoot myself with the DSLR, and we've been shooting for about six months. And I found the resource you've built over at uh, learningdslrvideo.com to be extremely useful uh, f for myself. So I'm um, really excited to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to share knowledge with everybody. And these podcasts are a great way to do it. And I know when I've done podcasts myself, I usually do it for more selfish reasons. I'm like, I want to interview this guy because he knows a lot about X and he could help me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, these podcasts are great for sharing information. Uh, it certainly is. And it's a great way to to speak to, to potentially people you, you may not be able to get hold of. And as you say, just, just ask them some questions and you can get a lot out of it yourself. So I know the past two episodes that I've got, I've, I've had a heap out of it that I've implemented just on my own. All right, Dave. So for our listeners out there, what we're going to do in, in this episode, we're going to be spending about 30 minutes and we'll dive a little bit into Dave's background. And we're going to then spend a bit of time looking at how Dave's gone about setting up learningdslrvideo.com and how he's built such a, an amazing audience over at the site there. We're then going to bring you some, some of Dave's top tips for shooting with the DSLR. And yeah, we'll go from there. So Dave, why don't, you, why don't you kick off with a little bit of your background of prior to setting up uh, Learning DSLR and also yeah, why you chose to go ahead and set up that particular site. Unlike your first guest, because I think that's the only one you've got posted on your website so far, but I guess he had an education in film school. I am not like that. I don't have any film school education or whatsoever. My background is actually in audio. I did, I studied audio engineering in school. I actually have a bachelor's of music and I used to design 
real large scale sound systems like churches, arenas, football stadiums, airports, sound systems that were very large. So I have a strong foundation in audio. And then as your question to why I started it, my when our first child was born about 10 years ago, I I decided to stay home and she kept working because I'd have the first shift as a stay-at-home dad. And then when our second child was born, I actually went back to work. But during that time that I was a stay-at-home dad, I don't know if you have kids of your own, but they don't do much in the first few months. They basically sleep and eat and you change diapers. So I had some extra time on my hands. So I started a number of websites. Um, Some had done quite well many years ago. And what I was doing several years ago when I got really interested in DSLRs, because I've been shooting video for, I don't know, ever since YouTube came around, to do help promote my uh, real estate websites. And they were doing really well. It was a technique that was working really well for me. I was creating spoofs and funny videos and stuff like that, mostly with a, a camcorder. But then I remember watching an Apple promotional video, and I really liked the look, and I wanted to spoof it, but I didn't know why the shot looked a certain way. And I kept studying it and looking at it. I was like asking around the forums and people said, that's just a usually, that's a real shallow depth of field. And I was like, how do I get that shallow depth of field? And people were like, well, you can just buy a DSLR. They're pretty cheap now and you can shoot video with them. I was like, oh, let me try that. And when the 5D Mark II came out, it was too expensive. And then the 70 came out, it was too expensive. And then the T2i came out, I was like, oh, I'm buying it. It's cheap. Let's try this. And that's how I started this whole process is, with the website, I was just like, let's create another website because websites are pretty easy to create. And I just, I, I, at first I thought it was going to be more of a brain dump where I would just find a particular topic I wanted to look, look at or test, like auto lighting optimizer, for instance, on the Canon cameras. So I was like, if I turn it on, what does it do? If I turn it off, what does it do? And so I, why not create an actual video of it uh, for my own sake so I can go back and see later? And so I published it to the website to share with other people and people enjoyed me doing those type of tests. So they're like, encourage me to do more. And I kept doing more and more as I was learning. So I was like, maybe making one or two videos a week on things that I was learning. And that's pretty much why I started it. Fantastic. It's, as you say, a bit of a brain dump to start with, but you've certainly built up an amazing resource uh, now. I know I've spent hours and hours on the site and uh, on your Vimeo channel and YouTube channel going through all the videos. And uh, uh, whenever now I've, uh, when I'm trying to, to, to look at something or correct something with my videos, I'll um, just pop across to your site and uh, bang in a few keywords into the custom search. And nine times out of 10, you've uh, covered covered my issue. So it's, Yeah, uh, great. I'm <laughs> glad I could help. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So it's a, it's really good. Uh, let's let's move on to some of the stats and your audience um, surrounding learning DSLRvideo.com. Why don't to give a little bit of perspective to our listeners? Why don't you just run through maybe some of the, like website video visitors, how many videos you might have on your site, and where the the majority of your community, I guess, comes to whether it's the site or whether it's your YouTube or Vimeo channels. Sure. First off, in terms of visitors to my site, I've been typically hovering around 100,000 visits a month. I think, I haven't looked at my stats in a while, but a good 40% of those visitors are from outside the United States, which is really cool because I get a lot of people like yourself from all over the world, which is it's a lot of fun talking to people from just about everywhere. You're asking how many posts. That's a good question. I'm pulling it up right now. I guess two or 300. 
Yeah, I've got uh, two, about 250, and I've got about 30 drafts. I've got always ideas. I've got constant ideas of things that I want to try and do next. So I, I got about 30 posts that I want to do that are just sitting there ready to go, but I just don't have time. In terms of where I really see the growth, the huge amount of growth for me is by far it's on YouTube. And I'm up to about, oh, getting close to about 40,000 subscribers on YouTube. And my videos get watched for about, 400,000 times a month on YouTube, which is just blows me away. I, I'm just <laughs> amazed how many people watch my videos. And then on Vimeo, it's a much smaller audience. Uh, my videos get watched about 30,000 times a month or so. So it's a really neat tool as my audience keeps growing. Because at the beginning of the year, of this year, I only had 14,000 people or subscribers on YouTube. So the way it's growing is amazing. And I could see this time next year probably having 100,000. And that provides me with a lot of, I don't know, neat resources and stuff, having that kind of popularity because like having a relationship with one of the largest camera stores in the world, B&H, they just send me stuff. They're like, Dave, what do you want to look at? We'll send it to you. So I'll make a little bit of money off of my affiliate network that I built up with B&H. But by far, my biggest growth is definitely in YouTube. And I've got, if you want to run through like stats with Facebook, I got 3,000 followers on Facebook and a couple thousand on Twitter and I don't know, maybe a thousand on Google Plus. So social networking wise, those that's where I stand. Yeah, absolutely. YouTube, it's it's probably correlates with a lot of the stats around YouTube. That's uh, what now the second biggest uh, search engine in the world, and I'm sure it's probably fast approaching Google itself. And it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be surprising if in the future it actually overtook Google as the biggest search engine, in my opinion. Yeah, so video is a very powerful tool. So how do you go about moving moving viewers from YouTube to monetizing them? Do you are you pushing people? Um, or encouraging people to come back to your site or are you uh, monetizing it with with AdSense on the YouTube videos or is there a way that you've seen or you're getting the, the biggest traction from? That's a really good question. I don't push it too hard. I know there's some people on YouTube that push it extremely hard to get people to their website. And I haven't really pushed it that hard. For instance, a really good example of this is your description field below the video. I typically put just about all the text in because if I typically when I do a video, sometimes I'll write a script. I won't read the script, obviously. I just want to know what I'm going to say. And then when I'm talking to the actual camera, I don't, I'm not reading. I'm just I do a kind of a paragraph at a time. So I'll read it on the screen and then I'll turn towards the camera and it won't come out exactly the way I wrote it. But um, that script is already there. So I usually put it in the description. But Getting back to this really good example is if you put if you're talking about let's say shutter actuations and how to find which one which site will give you the most accurate shutter actuations so if if you're going to buy or sell a used camera you might want to know how much life is left on the shutter do you put those links in the description below the video or do you put them on your site typically what I'll do is I'll write the put the script below the video but then I'll encourage people to go to my site to get the actual link. And some people complain about it. They're like, why don't you just put it in the description? I'm like, come on, I've got advertisers on my site. So it's not a bad thing. It's just one click over to my site and you can find the links there. I would like to push them more to my site. I'm not too aggressive about it. I know other people are. 
But I think that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It does. And I can certainly, I can appreciate where you're coming from with the, some of the negative comments. It's amazing. Some people just don't get that the reason you're able to produce this particular content is because you're able to monetize it. I know I've had a few comments on our Facebook page with some of the Facebook advertising we do. They're saying, oh, hey, why are you advertising to me? Get get away with your advertising. And I'm, how do you think you're using Facebook for free? It's because of advertisers. It's, it's quite quite amusing sometimes. Okay, let's let's look a, a little bit, go into a little bit then around around your site. So you've got over 250 posts. How long would you say or would you estimate you'd have to put into the creation of each video and the preceding post? It depends. There's I would things that I would call cornerstone pieces, ones that I would like to spend a lot of time on because I know it's going to be extremely popular because I might be one of the only few guys in the country to have, let's say, two cameras that I can compare against each other. In that case, I always spend, because B&H gives me a full 30 days to review products, and I'll spend the full 30 days working on that kind of video. I won't be working on every hour, working hour kind of thing, but I'll spend a lot of time. I'll spend a lot of time with those cameras because I know those will be extremely popular, and some of those videos will get watched 400, 500,000 times. So in that case, I'll spend a lot of time. But an average kind of typical post that I know is only going to get watched maybe 10 or 20,000 times, I'll probably spend, it might be, the idea might be in my head for a few days and then I might write it down. So just writing it down might just take 15 minutes and then I'll actually record it, which might only take, I usually can do it on the first or second take. And usually my video is only three or five minutes long. So recording the video will only take maybe 20 minutes and then editing will take a lot longer and then rendering and then uploading and then putting out to the social media. I'd say all in all, if I'm doing a typical video, yeah, you're looking at maybe three, three and a half, four hours, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, so I got a little bit of envy back there. I'd, um, you're talking about uh, if you're only getting 10,000 or 20,000 views, you won't spend as long. I know. <laughs> I'm investing four or five hours in videos that are getting me at 250 <laughs> views. <laughs> I think if you build really good content, and I think, and you got to look out, I don't even really consider it competition, but because um, there's a lot of other people that do similar videos to what I do, especially on comparison videos, and they, they do an outstanding job. But you should do a little bit of research, find out what other people have already put up on YouTube. So search for the most popular videos and then you might say, oh, I didn't know that. Or or you might watch the videos like, oh, I want to know more about this, but he didn't talk about it. And then fill in the gaps and create a very complete piece. I think people are really appreciate that. And also there's the other big thing, too, I think a lot of people neglect is not only watch those top videos, but look at some of the top comments because they might say, you totally got it wrong. And that's the funny thing about YouTube, especially with the audience that I have now. I can publish thing, publish a video and with 10 minutes, I know if I've got it right or wrong because they'll tell me. If I got something wrong, it's Dave, you screwed this part up. Ah, oh, darn. Definitely look at the comments because you, you can learn a, a ton just from reading all those. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's that's really brilliant. I know I, I look at our stats in terms of some of our videos we host with uh, with Wistia.com and they provide pretty great heat maps in terms of viewers and where people start watching, stop watching, et cetera, et cetera. So I can, I can gauge from that how engaged people are with the audience, but certainly... Again, I'm very envious that you're able to do that within 10 minutes without without the need to even look at stats. It's the comments <laughs> give you the instant feedback. 
I do look at stats too, especially one of the things I learned early on, which I think is a big thing with most YouTube videos is that if you are going to be in front of the camera and you have a two or three minute video, you don't want to, you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of, you're going to lose a lot of your audience in the first 20 or 30 seconds if you're on camera for that long. So if you're talking about a camera or you're talking about whatever you're, whatever you're selling or whatever you're doing, cut away to a B-roll shot of something and you shouldn't be on screen for more than 15, 20 seconds. I try to limit even less than that sometimes. Not that I don't having myself on the screen is a bad thing. It's just that it's much more engaging. And if you're trying to make a point on something and you can reinforce that with really good cutaway B-roll type shots, man, it just, you, what you do is you look at your, the YouTube analytics and you watch what happens with a video with B-roll versus not. And it's just night and day. I learned that early on that the more B-roll I put in, the more people stayed glued or even rewound and watched things over again throughout the whole three to five minutes of the video. If you don't, they drop off quickly after, like I said, the thir first 30 seconds. Yeah, that's fantastic. Hold that thought for just a second, Dave. I think that's a fantastic segue into some of the techniques and some of the gear that you use to, to, to shoot the videos and making them more engaging. But I just have one more question, which I guess is related to both of these points. You seem to produce a fair number of videos where you're actually doing a like a, a shoot off or, or a comparison between probably the latest one will be like the T4i against the T3i. These are obviously quite popular type style of videos, are they? Oh yes. In fact, it's it's, and in terms of building the YouTube audience, that those are my number one because you can look in your stats and find out where you're getting the most subscribers from each video, and I'm getting hundreds a month or more on those particular comparison videos. Because if you think about it, I don't know where you live, but in my part of the country, a lot of the not even the small mom and pops, but some of the regional camera stores have been going out of business, like Ritz Camera and Wolf Camera filing for chapter 11. And I think, uh, I don't know if you can blame me and some other people on YouTube, but uh, it could be due to comparison videos because when you walk into a camera store and you start talking to the guy or girl behind the, the counter about a certain camera or lens or filter or whatever like that, you have no idea if that person is shooting 50 weddings a year and is extremely, has a lot of experience to draw from and can guide you to the right camera or is somebody that takes pictures of his cat with an iPhone. You don't know. You don't. But with somebody like me who's built up somewhat of a personality or brand on YouTube and you can see where you can see the quality of my work. You can see instantly the quality of my work of what I'm doing. And if you don't like it, you can obviously move on, but if it's the type of look that you're going after, you're definitely going to come back or subscribe to my channel. And when I do a comparison video in my level of expertise, because I like, I've only been doing this for three years. I'm not a, like a Shane Hurlbut or a famous DP that works on Hollywood films. I'm just a guy learning. And I think a lot of people can connect with that. And I tell people this, hey, I'm learning, I make mistakes. And then a lot of people find it accessible to my style because they're learning too. They like to learn along with me. And I learn a lot from their comments. They'll say, Dave, you might want to try it this way. And, oh, I didn't even think of that. I think that I, I, I'm going off on a tangent, but I think I answered your question. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I must say that's that was the exact reason that I subscribed to you in the first place. I was uh, looking at the comparison between a 60D and a 600D. And I did, I come to the, the, the conclusion based off your video that the 600D was going to be suitable for me because I wasn't doing a lot of stills photography. I was just needed it for, for video. And I guess some of the, the key differences were more, I get potentially more related to the stills photography with the 60D. Yeah, the, both those cameras. Both those cameras have the same exact image quality. They have the same sensor. They might have a different processor in them. I can't remember. I think they do. Uh, yeah, they do. The the Digic Four processor, and it's the same APS-C sensor. So, image quality for both video and stills is going to be exactly the same. But how you get there, and like you were saying, photography-wise, the 60D might have a few things that you might like better that might get your results quicker. Um, but image quality, you're going to end up with the same image if you have the time. For instance, maybe one shoots at a faster frame rate, and you might be able to catch that shot because one was able to shoot one frame faster per second, and you weren't able to do that, whatever you're trying to accomplish, quicker. So in the latest Canon M camera, that just the EOS M camera, came out, it has the exact same sensor. So image quality, again, is the same. Where everybody's wondering and waiting when the new APS-C sensor is going to come out, and everybody's thinking that's going to be in the new Canon 7D. Hopefully, we'll see that pretty soon. Fantastic. All right, so moving along, let's let's go back to some of the shooting techniques for for making your videos engaging. And I'm I'm going to be nice and selfish here. So I'm shooting a weekly news update for for our audience. We're we're a travel agency here, so I shoot just a, a quick recap of the news each week. I want to make them more engaging. They're about five minutes long, each of these videos. I'm shooting by myself and it's generally in, in the office or in the, in, in the immediate vicinity of the office. You, you're just talking about the fact that people will tune in for 30 seconds if it's face to camera. How, how am I best to go about introducing B-roll? Should I be um, shooting with a secondary camera or can I achieve um, some good results with just the one camera and actually spending the time to, to go off and shoot some B-roll either before the main shoot or after the main shoot? Oh, you can definitely just do it with one camera. The, 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 the times that I use two cameras at the same exact time and they're both shooting at the same exact time, if I'm demonstrating something, in real time and I'm not cutting away. If so, let's say I'm demonstrating a certain procedure on the camera itself and I'm demonstrating how to go from one mode to the other or how to use the touch screen or something like that. You'll see me on camera, I'll talk to the camera when I look down towards the camera and I'm actually fooling around with it with my fingers, then I'll get a close-up shot of that. That's when I would use two, but everything else. So if you're a travel agency, let's say, and you're talking about the weekly recap or something like that, and you're talking about a new island that's popular, and you happen to go there, and you've got some great cutaway shots of people water skiing or jet skiing or doing stuff like that, and you're talking about them jet skiing, and they got great deals on jet skis or something like that. I have no idea what you do, actually. But if you have that those cutaway shots, they can make all the difference in the world and keeps it in terms of retaining your audience. And and not having that YouTube dip <laughs> in terms of losing viewers. Because if you can have really good engaging B-roll like exactly when you're talking about that particular, and to really enhance what a story you're trying to tell, will really help you out. And in terms of the B-roll, what's the best type of B-roll? Are we talking little pans and zooms and using sliders or something like that? Or can it be as simple as... I don't know, if you haven't got the time or the location to, to introduce video 
as your B-roll, can you introduce images potentially into in, in the editing process? Oh, sure. You could definitely. The one thing I, I've learned a long time ago, there's an awesome research, resource and it's on Digital Juice. I learned many years ago. They have a thing called Digital, Digital Juice TV. And you'd have to go back way in the archives, but some of the stuff they have back there is just absolutely brilliant. I don't know if you can share that link. I'll try to find a link for you on where to find those archives deep buried. But one of the things I learned a long time ago from those guys, which were just pros, they're way ahead of their time, is if you do have something on the screen, you want to have some sort of movement. If the camera's moving, that's great. If if just your hands are moving in the frame, that's okay too. But if you have a picture, don't keep it stagnant. Try to do a Ken Burns type of thing where you're zooming in or panning left or doing something like that keeps the interest going. Having a stagnant picture on the screen for three to four seconds, while it might seem like it wouldn't be that bad of a thing, but if you could just add that little bit of movement with a simple keyframe, pan and tilt or whatever you want, zoom, it adds so much more professional feel to it. I think that kind of answers your question. It does. All right. Now let's go. I think there's potentially at least one more very important aspect to, to I guess, getting a, a good quality engaging video. And I would imagine it's the soundtrack. I, I guess it's a two-part question. Where do you find music to include in your videos? And two, how how do you decide? Is it is it essentially just a little bit of just, I guess, you, you getting a feeling from a particular soundtrack as to how it's going to affect the video? It depends on the video, obviously. If you're talking about the type of videos that I make, like comparison videos and stuff like that, that are really popular. I do other videos, <laughs> like corp. I've done some corporate videos, some real estate videos, you know, stuff like that. So they're all going to take on uh, their own feel or... For instance, if you're just talking about a comparison video, what I've learned with those are if you're going from topic to topic and you have some background music, and I use, I have a relationship with uh, premiumbeat.com and they've got a very large selection of really high quality music. My they, they do charge a bit for their songs, but they're royalty free, so you can use them as much as you want after that, after you purchase it. But those songs are great in terms of using as background music for when I'm talking. Especially, you don't want anything with like lyrics in it. it can be distracting while you're doing a voiceover. And what I noticed, if I have a 20-minute comparison video and I'm going from topic to topic, a lot of times you'll hear in the background, it's on a subconscious level, is the musical end as I finish a thought and I'm moving on to the next item or thought i'll start a different background music and i'll let that music start up and it's a lot of people don't even notice that but it really carries the whole piece along a lot nicer so i think that answers your question yeah it does it does and that's yeah your videos are just incredibly engaging so um i can see that yeah you're, you're doing something right <laughs> thanks <laughs> now just one thing i'm just on your site right now and i've noticed I guess it's relatively recently you've started playing around with the thumbnails of your videos. How are you are you seeing better click-throughs or better play rates by doing this? Oh yeah, I love I just started doing that recently. I love that's one of the things I love about DSLRs is not only do they take awesome pictures, they take awesome video and I love taking pictures. I like carrying just one camera with me. And what I started doing, if you're looking at that one that's like the Sennheiser G3 comparison video where I'm standing where with all the transmitters and I've got the Denver skyline in the background. 
that's a composite picture. And I'm a huge Scott Kelby training fan. I don't know if any of your audience knows anything about that, but I've learned so much in photography that crosses over into video all the time. And for a year, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have any relationship with them. They don't provide me any kickbacks or anything. But you can get for $150, $200 a year, you can um, watch all the videos. You'll never even watch all of them because there's so many of them. And there's different techniques you can learn. And this one um, is by a gentleman. Um, his name is Joel Grimes. And that's his kind of style. Um, so it's I shot the picture HDR of the landscape because I was right there. I just set my picture up. I did five bracketed frames for the, the landscape behind me. I, you know, I tone mapped it within... Um, Photomatics Pro. And then the picture of me, I'm down in my basement studio. I just took a picture of me and they were all done with hot lights, no flash. <laughs> Although I, I really do need to buy some flashes um, or strobes. And I just took that and I filed the example that Joel Grimes gives in his lesson on Kelby Training. And I think I don't I haven't done a lot of research on it yet, but I know when I personally see a thumbnail like that. I am way more inclined to click on that than some guy sitting in a office with really poor lighting and it's not really showing you what he's going to demonstrate. So I, I don't know for a fact that I'm getting higher click through rates on that, but I got to, because I know a lot of people comment on the actual thumbnail itself. So I think it's working. Yeah, oh, it's pulling me in. Uh, you're looking at, you've got, I'm just looking at your homepage. You've got essentially a, a, a grid of uh, nine videos, and that one just stands out truly above every other video there. It's so engaging. I know I've been playing around with it a little bit, just started playing around with it, and it seems to have increased our play rates. But you no, know, it's certainly something that our audience should consider looking at as well. Yeah, and I think if you look at some of the top YouTube people, like the top 100 YouTube people, you're going to find a common theme that they all do compositing and they might make the background totally yellow and they've got their subject title and big text so you can read it on the thumbnail. There's a lot of things that you can learn from some of those top 100 people on YouTube that are just making a ton of money. I went to a YouTube conference a couple of years ago, one of the very first ones. And a project manager came out on stage and said that some of the very, very top people on YouTube are making $100,000 a month. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to be up there. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely not at that level. I'm like in the top 5,000, but I'm not definitely in the top 10 or 100. Quickly approaching that though. No, <laughs> I don't know. I'd be, I'd be just amazed if this time next year I've got 100,000 people uh, following me. That would just be... Because one of the things I'd like to do with the site as I make more money with it is to do um, some different projects, um, passion projects. I'm working on one right now. It's a promotional piece for a local photographer and just spend as much time as I want on it and get the story where I want it to be. And I'm not asking to get paid for the project. And But maybe after it's done and I put it out, maybe I make some sort of training tutorial for it that I can sell. But I would be able to pick my own projects and work on things that I want to work on is where I'm heading with the site. On that, I, I don't need you to reveal numbers or anything like that. But is the site, is it sustainable now? Is it, is it a full-time income for you? I think since the launch of my first product last month, I can say, yes, it's getting to the point where it's making more than my other sites. Because my 
Real estate sites used to be the bread and butter for many years and done extremely well, but they've fallen by the wayside because I've spent so much time on this darn DSLR site. It's taken away from my other sites. When it comes down to it, this site is so much funner than real estate. So that's why you follow your passion and I really enjoy it. And it's just a lot of fun. I get so much great feedback. And, you, and it's like crickets over on my real estate site. Nobody cares. I could be, I could code up the best thing on that site, but nobody cares. So fantastic. I, I agree. It's if you're engaged with with your own, with the project you're on, it just makes it so much easier. It's not work, really. Yeah, it isn't. No, I didn't really enjoy it. All right, Dave. I've got one more question for you before we we go ahead and wrap up. Now, this one I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, and let's say you've got fifteen hundred dollars. You're new to the world of video shooting. We want to get a DSLR camera and some other kit without having to, to hold you to exact prices. What would you buy with that $1,500? First off, I, if I was a beginning shooter, I would go with a crop sensor camera like the Canons have. And I would actually go to get a refurbished Rebel. A lot of times these refurbished ones you buy directly from Canon you can get extremely good deals. In fact, there was a deal today. You could buy a Rebel T3i for around $350, and it's only got not many actuations on it whatsoever. So it's basically a brand new camera. I just picked one up because um, I'm doing a training course on the T3i right now, and I wanted to keep it for a while. So right there, you're only at $350. And then the first lens I would suggest most people get is uh, a 50 millimeter, a fast 50. And that's going to teach you a lot of things. And I would say just stay with that one particular lens for the first month or two. And you can learn so much from that one lens before you even get into zooms. Just deal with the fast 50, maybe the 1.8, and that's only 100 bucks. So now you're up to 450 bucks. So then I would graduate into a, a zoom that has IS. And there's lots of different ones out there. I particularly own one that works well for a crop sensor, and that's the 28 to 135. All this stuff is listed on my gear page as well. And if you go to my site, it says my gear at the top. So having this is really important, especially for video. The next one, I would definitely get like a, a video, road video mic. They're only like 150 bucks. The pro version, maybe 200 bucks. I actually get the pro version if you're using one of these Canon cameras because the preamp inside the cameras are pretty terrible. So you want to turn down that preamp as much as possible. So you want a very sensitive microphone. And the next thing I would buy, I don't know what I'm up to now. Let's see, I'm up to about 600, 700. Yeah, I'm probably, no, I'm actually probably about a thousand by now. The next thing I would buy is a tripod and a fluid head. That's going to run you a couple hundred and maybe a glide cam device, a monopod, and then you're going to need some ND filters. And I, actually, at that point, I think I've already broke your bank. So <laughs> this people, like your last guest talked about, he said, we're at a wonderful time right now because you can basically have access to all this wonderful gear and do stuff that people couldn't do for 10 years ago for fifty dollars to $100,000. Now we can do for just a couple of thousand dollars, which is amazing. This hobby that you're getting into, don't be misled. It's not a cheap hobby. It adds up. It keeps pulling at your wallet. I was buying more stuff today. I'm like, damn, I just keep buying stuff. I keep buying stuff. It doesn't seem to stop. Oh, I need that. I need a light. I need 
yeah, a polarizer. I need a monopod. It just keeps adding up. But the, I would say if you bought those items that added up to about $1,500, within the first year, you're just using those items. You can learn so much and you can produce unbelievably good work with those as you learn. And then as you get better, what I have did after a couple of years, I went to a full frame because it has some other advantages and you get better glass with the full frame. But just, gosh, you can buy things like refurbished or used lenses and really get you started for a cheap price. Yeah, absolutely. That's, listeners, I'm going to pop in links to everything we've been discussing in this episode. And I'll certainly make note to pop in a link direct to Dave's gear section, which will have uh, everything that he's discussed here as well. Now, Okay, Dave, let's, we'll just wrap up there. I really appreciate you taking the time today. We're a little bit over the 30 minutes that, that I asked of you, but, and so I appreciate you staying on the line. Obviously, you're fantastic at how-to videos and training. Uh, you, you've also just mentioned that you've put together a bit of a product. What's that product and who, who's going to benefit from, for, from getting this particular product? The first one I did was on the Canon T4i, and it's a beginner's guide. It's It just deals with the actual camera itself, so no accessories. I'm not going to teach you how to use a slider or a glide camera or how to use a, a external microphones and stuff. It's a three-hour, over a three-hour course, and all that time is just spent on the fen- fundamentals of video. I'm not teaching anything about stills. It's all about video, and there's so many things to cover, and there's so many settings and parameters that you can screw with, and I try to get you up to speed as fast as I can and show you all the things that I've learned over the last three years and the mistakes I've made and how to get the best results out of your camera. Just just the exposure on these cameras, if you're off by a third of a stop, can make a big difference when you get to edit your video and the lighting and, oh, there's so many different things, picture styles. So I demonstrate a lot of that stuff in that video, the Canon T4i, and I'm making one right now on the Canon T3i and then I've got some other courses I've got planned that I've started on in terms of editing and transcoding and rendering and stuff like that. But that's pretty much just getting started. It's a real beginner's type guide. If you've just bought the camera for Christmas or something like that and you're looking to get into video, then I think this will really help you out a lot. And this particular camera, the T4i, is, is, is this, this is Canon's newest camera, is it? Yeah, it's their latest offering on the Rebel line, which is extremely affordable won't set you back like the 5D Mark III will. And it's a great, great career. And in fact, if you've got the right lighting, and I've demonstrated this before in my videos, if you've got the right lighting and you compare the, because I've cut between both of them, the, the T2i, which you can get for, like I said, used for 300 bucks because they don't sell them anymore, and the 5D Mark III, you will have extremely a hard time telling the difference between the two. The only time that the 5D Mark III really starts to shine in terms of video is when you get into, when you start push, pushing the ISO well above 800, 1600, stuff like that. And I'm a run and gun type of shooter, so having access to really good lighting sometimes is not possible. So that's one of the major reasons I've got the 5D Mark III is I can use it just about anywhere, almost in, in pitch black lighting conditions and you still get amazing results yeah, that's great so that's it sounds to me like the product is is going to save our, our viewers if they go ahead and uh, purchase it it's going to save them a, a lot of time having to go through the manual and i'm sure you've probably you've gone through and picked out some shortcuts that they can pick up yeah it's i pretty much go through everything that's in the manual so you don't have to read it i talk about how long it takes to charge the battery and all that stuff i go through all that stuff that the manual talks about and a lot of things when the manual is 350 pages long 
and it's really biased towards photography. So it doesn't help you out much. You're only one or two chapters on video, so it's not much of a help. So that's why I created the course. Because when I create more advanced courses, I don't want to say, hey, go read the manual. Instead, just, hey, watch this course. Um, and then a prerequisite to more advanced courses I'm going to be making. Yeah, fantastic. I'm looking forward to the, to the T3OI course. I'll be getting that straight away. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right, Dave, again, thanks very much for coming on this episode. You've shared absolute gold throughout. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that episode. Can I ask one favor of you, Dave? Sure. This is going to be posted on uh, multimediamarketingshow.com. Could I ask that, that you maybe pop in from time to time on the site and answer any questions that our listeners leave in the comments below, below this episode? Sure. I'll give it, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take a look to see what the comments are. That's fantastic. So listeners, if you have any questions for Dave, you can um, just pop across to the show notes. I'll include the link to that in just a second. But apart from that, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on, on, on board the show and I hope to speak with you again shortly. Yeah. Nice talking to you. And thanks for doing this podcast because I know they're not easy and they take a lot more time than people think. So thanks for sharing all this information. And I think everybody collectively wins when everybody shares information like this. Thanks very much. And listeners, I will speak to you again very soon.